our Providence series today. Uh, we are on our second week on the first of the five points of the tulip, uh, the Calvinist tulip, the five points of Calvinism, however you want to call that. And so we are on the T, which is total depravity. And uh, our plan is to pick back up where we uh, left off last week, do a little bit of review, and, and to also pull forward. Uh, I don't know who all is responsible. I think Jerry is the originator, perhaps, of this list. I know Elizabeth Prada helped compile it, maybe in Romans class, and then Zach helped print it, and I think Jen and Thomas may have stapled them uh, today. So a lot of people contributed, but thank you for the handouts that are on your tables. If you don't have one on your table, there should be one on a table nearby. And we may not get to much on this handout today. We may get to some of it, but at least take it home and have it as something you can read over in devotions this week. Uh, Jerry, how would you give a, a word about this handout? What, what is it, and uh, how can it be beneficial? Yeah, I think it can just be practical on this on this topic, and just a reminder, a lot of verses that would be really, really bad news if we didn't know our Savior. But because of the Lord Jesus, um, it's not bad news. It's just a, a reminder of, uh, of our own indwelling sin, like Owen would put it, which is uh, devastating. But, um, but we, we have the Lord who has delivered us. And so um, it becomes good news, I think, when you read it. I think it can be encouragement if you... Uh, meditate on it a little bit. That's good. Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to dive deep into your word. Uh, Lord, please help us be faithful to it. Give us wisdom, clarity, boldness, and humility. Um, and Lord, help us uh, honor all that your word says and honor our Savior and the saving work that he has done for us. Um, Lord, we're thankful. We are so thankful that our salvation is not dependent on us, uh, but it is totally dependent on Christ. And I pray, Lord, that our, our joy in Him, our trust in Him would be elevated, Lord, as we consider further this doctrine of total depravity. Lord, because we are in and of ourselves absolutely hopeless uh, for anything heavenward, uh, only by Your grace through Christ. And so, Lord, just instruct our hearts, conform us to Jesus, help us better understand ourselves uh, so that we might better worship You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I told you I wanted to begin some of these weeks with quotes from well-known Christians coming to grapple with these doctrines. We looked at George Mueller last time around, and this week we're going to look at Jonathan Edwards uh, from the 1700s and the Great Awakening. You can follow along on the screen here, this uh, quote. It's a little lengthy, so hang with me here. This is Edwards. He says this, "'From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom He would to eternal life and rejecting whom He pleased.'" It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and His justice and thus eternally disposing of men according to His sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. <clears throat> and there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense, in God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy and hardening whom He will. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. And I think this is the story of a lot of us, we could say. This is a similar 
path that we went on. And when you first heard this, it may have sounded more like a harsh or severe doctrine. And then as time goes on and the months and years go by, uh, we believe as a work of the Spirit takes place. And after a period of time, you come out to believe this is actually, no. I can't imagine another way of conceiving of God than that He is truly sovereign and that He is God. So let me just remind us here again, one way to boil this whole discussion down between the two sides that have been called historically Arminianism and Calvinism. Uh, you can see here, okay, this is just one other simple way to say it. The Arminian says, I owe my election to my faith. I, I owe my election to my faith. God chose me because he knew I was going to believe. The Calvinist says the opposite. I owe my faith to my election. In other words, I would never have believed had God not chosen to give me the gift of faith. Had God left me to my own devices, I would have chosen the path I had already chosen for myself, which was death and destruction and eventually hell. So the question is, is God's choice the reason I believe? Or is, the, uh, is God's choice the reason I believe? Or do I believe... Uh, I'm getting confused here. Um, <laughs> is my belief the foundation for God's choice, or is God's choice the foundation for my belief? That's exactly right. Uh, so, uh, Jerry, some opening thoughts here. Yeah, this thing is so foundational and practical. So this is, and, and I do believe the next eight weeks, the, the rest of the points um, that, that we'll go over, really right on this one. If you come to a strong conviction on this one, um, the rest of the dominoes fall uh, far easily, or more easily, I think. Well, and there's just so much comfort in knowing that God is sovereign. Um, you know, and, and if anything, like as I wrestled through this, you know, over the years and, you know, came to see it more and more, you know, what the Bible was clearly teaching, um, it didn't actually, like, demotivate me from, like, living for the Lord. It's actually motivated me more, and I think in the right ways. Um, you know, because you can be very, you know, zealous for evangelism if all you have to do is get decisions, you know, get people to pray a prayer, whatever like that. But when you realize God is sovereign, one, it takes the burden off of me that, that I have to be responsible for winning someone to Christ. Um, and, and the flip side is it's like, well, God is going to save. And therefore, I can share the gospel with confidence and call every person that I can to repentance and faith, believe in Jesus, um, knowing that God's going to work through that message to, uh, to save people. But not, not just like in terms of evangelism, but like our own walk with the Lord, like and our, the security of our own salvation. You know, we talked about this, um, was it on Thursday? And this is a quote I, I think uh, Prada brought up, and I'd heard it before, you know, from John MacArthur, if I could lose my salvation, I would. And that's true. And if you don't feel that, then I'd say you don't know yourself well enough. Um, you really don't. Um, and I don't mean that to try to be argumentative, but if you think um, you have the ability to keep yourself saved or you think, oh, I could, I could never do that. Yes, you could and you would if you had the opportunity. And it is only by the undeserved grace of God that we are saved and that we are kept forever. And the, the more we, we let that sink in, oh my goodness, the comfort, the assurance, the security, the joy, the ability to rest when we realize that we don't have to work for this, it's just amazing. Thankfulness and humility. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Ian Murray said this, uh, Tyler sent me uh, this yesterday, <laughs> Ian Murray on um, Jonathan Edwards, who you just quoted. He learned by experience, as others had done before him, that while those who have 
little awareness of the real nature of sin may assert man's ability to repent and believe, to hate sin and love God. Those who know the true condition of man's nature can find comfort only in the knowledge that God saves by his sovereign good pleasure and for the praise of his glory and his grace. Spiritual experience and sound theology go together. According to the Reformers and the Puritans after them, uh, they attributed the opposition of the doctrine of grace as an evidence of spiritual ignorance. And so that's our, our desire is to just look at all of these passages and become more convinced um, of what the Bible says. And um, it would be a great joy to do so today, I think. So if you look again at the screen, I'm just reviewing real quick from last uh, Sunday. So just, just a quick review. I think we need to keep these points in our, in our mind. What total depravity is not, what we're not saying by that, it is not absolute depravity, meaning no one is as bad as they could be. Uh, any person could be worse than they are. It's because of God's common grace and His restraining grace in our conscience that keeps us from acting outwardly as sinfully as we possibly could. Uh, but so, so again, we're not saying that anyone is as bad as they could be. You could be worse. Anybody could be worse. Number two, it is not a complete absence of relative good, meaning, uh, you know, an unbelieving neighbor might help you out, right? You know, an unbelieving parent may care for their child or whatever it may be. So certainly we're going to see in God's common grace, there is relative goodness. But here, here's the question we, we want to get at is, uh, what exactly does that mean exactly? So let's look at this. What, what uh, total depravity is? Number one, positively, it means we are only and always sinning. Apart from regeneration, apart from the new birth, we are only and always sinning. And negatively, it means we, are, we have total moral inability. And just to remind you from last week, these are crucial verses uh, in this whole thing. Um, here we go. Uh, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as Jerry reminded us last week, after the flood in Genesis 8, nothing had changed. After the flood is over... God saw that the intention of man's heart was evil from his youth, so the flood did not solve the sin problem. That was part of the point of that. We're also told Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Romans 14 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So when you put those kinds of verses together, I think we see pretty clearly that although our neighbors who are unbelievers that we love are not as bad as they could be, and we, before we were Christians, were not as bad as we could be, and we did have relative goodness as far as the world considers goodness, if our actions were not coming out of a love for God and out of a faith in Christ, were they truly good deeds? No, they were only apparently good, but their motives ultimately were not for God's glory. And that's where, uh, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, 18, on the screen as well, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. If my nature is bad, I'm going to always produce bad fruit. If I'm a dead tree, if I'm a diseased tree, I'm going to produce bad fruit. And it's the nature that has to change first, and then the fruit uh, will change from what follows. Can we look at three more pretty devastating verses or convincing verses, you might say, from the Old Testament? When we looked at last week, uh, and I won't ask you to turn there, maybe we can turn to the other two, Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So again, we sin because we're sinners. We were born that way. We were conceived in sin. Um, Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So our most righteous act is like filthy rags. It's like a polluted garment. That's the most righteous thing apart from Christ we're talking uh, before uh, we're believers. And then um, Jeremiah 17, 9. Now again, once we become believers, our heart is changed from stone to flesh. But look at verse 9 here. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the, the, the unbeliever is a slave to sin in Romans 6, and they have no way out of that. They're, they're, it's a constant deception that's going on um, in their heart. And so no ability, as Mark has explained to us, to they can maybe choose what kind of sin and how much sin, but they can't choose to get out of that. By nature, they have an inability to, to move out of that. Their affections won't let them. Their affections are, are slaves to, to sin instead of Christ. And just to further give an example of that, when Jerry says they're free to choose what sin they pick, what, what, let me try to flesh that out just to give a simple illustration. And, and again, what I'm saying is true of unbelievers. It was true of all of us before we knew Christ. So this is not self-righteously that we're saying this. That's the whole point of this doctrine is that it's not because of us that we were, were saved. But imagine as an unbeliever, uh, you, you, you could, uh, let's say that there's someone uh, who has... Um, some need who has some, some, some money available, you could rob this person and take their stuff, in which case everyone would agree that that's wrong, right? Or as an unbeliever, I may choose to serve and help that person because it will increase my reputation with other people in the world. So I'm just choosing my sin. Am I going to rob them or am I going to help them? If I rob them, it's clearly selfish. Everyone agrees with that. But if I help them, if I'm not doing it for the glory of God, I'm doing it for the glory of me. And so at the end of the day, I'm just picking sins. And some sins are more harmful outwardly than others, but they're all at motive, at root, evil. They're all wicked. This is why foundationally, we don't just need uh, you know, a new outward self. We don't need a new peripheral change to our life, a little new habit. We need a new heart, a new spirit. We need a new foundation of who we are. And so we're not just choosing which sin, but we're actually going to be able to be motivated by God's glory. Yeah. Uh, not perfectly, but truly. Yeah, move from the self-help section of the Christian bookstore to the Bible section. The self-help section, not highly recommended. Isn't that all they sell in Christian bookstores? That might be. Yeah, I hope there are still a Bible or two in there. Yeah, there's still a few. Um, you know, thinking about this again, and we, we, we referenced this last week, uh, Romans 3, you know, verse 10, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Um, he goes on to say, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we, we have to understand that when it talks about seeking for God, that's not talking about a general like religious disposition to seek some kind of divinity. Otherwise, nobody there would be no like false religions, there'd be no pagan religions, there'd be no false anything like that. When he says no one seeks for God, he's talking about the one true God. Okay? And not just seeking the one true God, seeking the one true God on his terms. No one does that naturally. Like, we, we want to seek our idea of God, whatever our, our, our idea of God is, but we don't want to seek the one true God as He is, as He says He is in His Word, and on the terms that He sets for how we approach Him. Okay? None of us want to do that in and of ourselves. 
We got to have God do something in our hearts to actually make us want to seek God the way he says we should seek him. So that whole mentality, and I mean, I'm not going to get like stuck on this, but the whole seeker sensitive church movement and, you know, everybody's just seeking for God. No, they're not. They're seeking for a false version of God, their own idea of God, which is not naturally rooted in scripture. And so when he says, Paul says, no one seeks for God, either Paul's a liar or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, and that means all these people out there that, you know, we've been told, oh, everybody's just earnestly seeking. No, they're not. They're not. Like God has the work. How does he work? Through the gospel, through exposure to the truth. And he starts to awaken things in us that we wouldn't have awakened any other way. Um, and so Paul is, is so clear here that total depravity, when we say it's affected like all, all of our existence as human beings, like even if we know the truth, and like this is the thing, you can hear the truth and unless God works, you can have the gospel presented, like say just the way we present it here at North Ave, which I think is, is right, biblical, clear, powerful, um, and all that. Like you can hear that and you're not gonna respond appropriately. Even if we tell you, you should. What, what makes the difference? It's nothing in us. It's everything in what God does to open blind eyes, open deaf ears. Like you said, take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Until that happens, we will not seek God as he is on the terms that he sets. Go ahead. Go, go Jerry. Well, can't and won't. Turn seven pages to Romans 8 backwards, and you get to what we looked at last week right at the end, seven and eight, and these again. Not only are they not seeking, look at what's even, I think, worse news, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And I don't know that every unbeliever would say they're hostile to God, but that's what they are. And in their deceived heart, there's a hostility there. Romans 5 talks about how then there's reconciliation, where God takes away that hostility, but until God does it, they're hostile, and then the news doesn't get much better. Look at verse 8, uh, or the end of 7 there. Um, For it does not submit to God's law, like Greg's saying. They're not seeking. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There's a complete inability for them to submit to God's law. What would be the most submissive thing they could do? They would put their hope in Christ, right? They, it's impossible for them to do it until God regenerates their heart, gives them a brand new heart, where Mark started, that's the, what starts it, then they put their faith in Christ. Then they wake up and smell the coffee and it's like, oh, look how glorious Jesus is. I never knew that. Not until God changes them so that they can see it. And then finally, the fourth thing here is those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Once again, what would be the most pleasing thing they could do? They would put their hope in Christ. They can't do it. They can't please God. Inability. And so let me try to flesh out here with what y'all are both saying. My guess is that you've seen people in your life that you, would, you might even have called a seeker after God who's not a Christian, and we're trying to figure out how does that fit with what's being said here, because I agree with what they're saying up here and what the Scripture is saying, most importantly. But here, here's what you may be seeing in what we call, what has often been called a seeker. Here, here's what we're talking about. So I'll just flesh out a couple possibilities. Number one, a person may believe in the truth of the Bible mentally like I did before I was a Christian. I believed hell was real. I believed heaven was real. I believed Jesus died for sinners. I believe he rose from the dead and I was not born again and I was hostile to God according to scripture, which is true. But, but here's what you might see in a quote seeker, which is a bad label. It's not a biblical label. Here's what you might see. 
They have deep feelings of guilt over past failure, and they want the guilt to go away. So they're seeking a solution to their guilt problems. And it looks like they're seeking God because they're seeking what God can give them, which is forgiveness. But they're not actually seeking God on his own terms for God's sake. They just want to feel better about their guilt. Number two, it could be this. They really believe that there's a place called hell, and they really believe they're going to go there. And no one, not even Satan, thinks hell is a pleasant experience, right? No one. Even the demons say, please do not torment us before the time right? The demon-possessed man with the legion. Don't send us to hell. Even demons plead with God, please don't send us to hell. And so nobody wants to go to hell who understands what hell is. And everybody wants to go to a place where there's not eternal fire, but there's, it's a pleasant circumstance. It's a new creation. There's no sickness, no pain. You don't have to be born again to want no sickness, no pain, and no fire. You don't have to be born again to want that. But you, don't, you can want all those things and not desire God for who God is. You can see God at that moment like you know, the lottery ticket, that if you scratch it off, you might win a bunch of money. So he might be a means to less guilt, a means to better eternity, but he's not the reward until you're born again. See, you're not seeking him until you're born again. You're seeking the benefits that Christianity offers you, at least in some misaligned, misunderstood form, but you're not seeking God for God. And this, this is where, this is where it's, it's a huge point. Edwards was so good on this. Edwards says we can, we can seek, we can love apparently, aspects of God's character, like he's powerful and knows us and cares. But he says, we, the one aspect of God we truly hate until we're born again is the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. And, and here, here's how you know that. Take God's law, which shows his holy standard, and apply it closely to someone's life and see if they get happier with you or sadder, right? See how they respond. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend are living together and they say, we love the Lord, we're seeking the Lord, we love him, we're not hostile to God. Okay, how about this? Fornicators will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. You think they're gonna respond going, oh, I love, that's, oh, that's just, it warms my heart, I love this God. They're gonna say, that's awful, get that out of my face. That is their hostility to God, they don't even know they have. As soon as his holiness comes down through the form of his law, they respond by saying, how dare you say that to me? That's offensive, get out of my face with that. What is that? That's the hostility that's dormant, right? It's hidden underneath the surface of these people who maybe even go to church and they got a Bible on their shelf. But when you oppress the holiness of God up to their life, they respond angrily and they want to get out of the conversation. Why? Because they are at enmity with God. They're hostile to God. They cannot submit to God's law. They will not submit to God's law because they hate the holiness of God. And it takes in the miracle of the new birth to delight in the holiness of God and the character of God, and to love and want to be more like God in his holiness. And then once that happens, we are now seeking God. That's because we're born again. We are now alive in Christ. And that, that's, what, that's what causes those things to begin to happen. Well, and I want, I want to say, listening to you say that, like, it, it's not like when you become a Christian, like all of a sudden you can articulate that exactly the no. way Mark just did, that you understand every single emotion and everything that you're working through. Like, you know, for me, it was kind of a process of working out. You know, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That, that, that describes what I went through the first four, five, six years of being a Christian is like uh, coming to terms with all, all that was going on in me. Like I didn't get it. Like, I didn't under, I couldn't put words to it. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I deserved to go to hell. I knew Jesus was my hope. So I called out to him. 
Like, you know, th- these are things, the more we dive into Scripture, the more we study, the more we learn, the more we're taught well, like it starts to make sense. We're like, oh, okay, I can, that's what was going on here. And, and, and wh- why did I suddenly feel a need for Jesus? Well, now I know why. Why did I feel bad about my sin? Well, because of this. Wh- why is it that I can't be comfortable doing things and, 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 you know, enjoying things that I used to do and enjoy? Like, it, all of a sudden, it's like, what, what, what is going on inside of me? And it's like, the longer we walk, the more we understand that is the Spirit of God conforming me to Christ, changing my conscience, changing my desires, changing my heart. You know, obviously sin's not fully eliminated, but all of a sudden I've got desire for things I didn't have a desire for. And it's like, wow, I actually want to sing to God. I want to read my Bible. I, I want to go to church. I want to share the gospel. I want to stop sinning. You know, it's like, like you, you start to wrestle with all of this. And over time, we're able to make better sense. And hopefully, what you're hearing from us can, can give you some pointers, some categories, so that no matter where you are in that process, I can help you make better sense of what God's been doing in your heart. And I think it's even not just four or five or six. For me, it's a half a century. Every time we go through Romans, <laughs> it's, uh, there is brand new things that jump out just on this, where you feel like, oh man, I think that's, I think that's more biblical than what I thought last year. And so it is a continual growing thing. Just in case someone would say, okay, we've seen some things in the Old Testament. Maybe Paul's writing this. How about Jesus? Well, he surely wouldn't say the same thing, but he does. Look at Mark 7, chapter 7, just a few pages back. And this is 21 through 23. Again, I think almost just as convincing maybe um, about where we are without him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All those evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so oftentimes, I know my uh, father-in-law worked for the FBI and uh, taught criminal justice classes, and he invited me to come in because he said, in criminal law, they teach that you know, maybe the person's a criminal because, I don't know, they had a bad upbringing or grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or, you know, mom cut their toenails wrong when they were eight, never really recovered. <laughs> and so he said, come on in and talk about depravity. Talk about why we're really a criminal. It's right from the heart. It's right from inside. We started like that. That's all of us. And it is, Greg said, it's only by the grace of God that he has got us out of the criminals. Now, we still do criminal-like behavior, but that's not really who we are. We are no longer slaves to this. You look at this list, and it just, it's terrifying. But that's what we have. So please don't look within for your goodness, right? That's, that's kind of a thing, you know, now it's like... Uh, Kind of look deep inside and find the truth. Don't look deep inside to find the truth. Look outside of you to Jesus. That's where the truth is. Yeah, just from, from last week, this is another important slide here uh, about moral inability. This is really what total depravity means. It means we are morally unable to come to Christ apart from divine intervention, apart from the new birth. And remember, it means three things. Number one, man cannot do the good. We've seen that. Number two, man cannot even desire the good for the right reasons. Number three, man cannot understand the good, which we talked about last week. So let me just, I'm going to read, uh, again, it's extended quote from Spurgeon. This, but you can't beat Spurgeon on this. This is so well said. 
Um, listen to this. This is Spurgeon explaining moral inability. Remember last week I tried to distinguish physical inability from moral inability, right? So God's not saying you're physically unable to do the right thing. He's saying what? You're morally unable because you love the wrong thing. So listen to this amazing quote from Spurgeon. At least I thought this was great. So, okay, it's a long quote. Stick with me. Here we go. Spurgeon says, you see a sheep. You know, it's going to be a good quote when you start like that. You see a sheep, how willingly it feeds upon the herbage. You never knew a sheep to sigh after meat, so sheep don't want the meat. It could not live on lion's food. Now bring me a wolf. And you ask me whether a wolf cannot eat grass, whether it cannot be just as docile and domesticated as the sheep. I answer no, because its nature is contrary thereunto. You say, well, it has ears and legs. Can it not hear the shepherd's voice and follow the shepherd wherever he leads? Could a wolf, if a wolf wanted to, could a wolf do just like a sheep and follow the shepherd? Yes. What's the, is it going to do that? No, why? Because its nature repels against that, right? So listen, I answer certainly there is no physical cause why the wolf cannot do so, but its nature forbids. And therefore, I say it cannot do so. There will always be a marked distinction between the wolf and the sheep because there is a distinction in nature. Now, the reason why man cannot come to Christ is not because he cannot come so far as his body or his mere power of mind is concerned, but because his nature is so corrupt that he has neither the will nor the power to come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit. But let me give you a better illustration. You see a mother with her baby in her arms. You put a knife in the mother's hand and you tell her to stab her baby to the heart. She replies, very truthfully, what? I can't. Don't, doesn't that make perfect sense of what he's saying? Is she physically able? Yes. Is she morally able? No. I cannot. Now, so far as her bodily power is concerned, she can if she pleases. There is the knife. There is the child. The child cannot resist, and she is quite sufficient in her strength uh, to immediately stab the child to its heart. But she is quite correct when she says she cannot do it. Her nature as a mother forbids her doing a thing from which her soul revolts, hates. Simply because she is that child's mother, she feels she cannot kill it. It is even so with a sinner. Coming to Christ is so obnoxious to human nature that although so far as physical and mental forces are concerned, men could come to Christ if they would, it is strictly correct to say that they cannot and will not unless the Father who has sent Christ draws them to himself. Isn't, that's just, that's really well so said from, from Spurgeon. So I think that's a good way to distinguish moral inability and physical uh, inability mm -hmm. there. I had a thought and it just went away. That's okay. Sorry. Jerry? Yep, that's great. I don't want to keep talking. Go ahead. Go, go, to John, go to John chapter 6. If you think of your thought, we'll come right You're back. You're pretty good at this. Go, no, to go to John talking. chapter 6. And th this one, I remember the, well, it may not have been the first time, but maybe the first time that this text really hit me strongly was from Sproul laying this one out uh, online, still on YouTube, his talks on this subject. But John 6, toward the end of the chapter, Now, Jesus has just said he's the bread of life. If you come to him, you'll not hunger. If you believe in him, you'll never thirst. And the, the crowd is offended and they, they refuse to come to him. And now look at this, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Stop. That's a moral offense at Jesus. They're morally offended at Jesus. They don't like him. Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, verse 60, I'll even put this on the screen too. Verse 63, 
It is the Spirit who gives life. Now look, the flesh, stop right there. What were we before the new birth? We were dead in sin. We were just flesh. Sin nature, that's all we were. We did not have the new birth. We did not have the new nature. So we were just flesh. So let's look at 63 again. It is the Spirit who gives life. How much help is our flesh? The flesh is no help at all. Now just stop there. When it comes to the the new birth, which is what Jesus means by getting life, new life, when we're dead in sin, we need life. Jesus doesn't say it's a team effort. This is not what people have called synergy in this sense, where Jesus and us team up together, right? The Holy Spirit gives prevenient grace, which is what Arminianism teaches, and we chip in our free will efforts, and with God's prevenient grace and our free will efforts, we join forces and we bring about new life. We bring about the new birth. That's not what it says. It says here, it is the Spirit, you could say alone, right, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, not 1%, not 0.1%. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you, I'm going to point at the screen here, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I think this is one of the clearest statements in the whole of the Bible on this topic. You cannot say it more strongly than Jesus is saying it right here. You ready? for? I'm going to mimic, I'm going to paraphrase R.C. Sproul very poorly. Okay, it's the poor man's version of R.C. Sproul. If you want the real one, go on YouTube and watch Total Depravity Part 2. So, uh, Jesus said, this is why I told you. So, R.C. Sproul circles this, and he goes, okay, no one here is a universal negation. It's a universal negative. Absolutely zero people on earth are accepted from this. 100% of humanity is in this group, okay? So, he says, no one can. That's moral ability. Zero people in the human race has moral ability, can, to do what? come to Christ, be saved, right? Bring about the new birth. No one is morally able to come to Christ unless it, what is it? It's the willingness to come to Christ, right? The will to come, the desire to come, unless it is chosen by free will. No, unless it, the willingness to come to Christ that no one has apart from Christ, unless it is given as a gift, granted him by the Father. I don't think you can say it more clearly than that. Zero people have the moral ability to come to Christ unless God gives it. And if God gives it, how many people come? It's a 100% success rate, and we'll argue for this uh, on Irresistible Grace in a few weeks. So thoughts on John 6 from either of you guys? Greg? Well, James White has rightly called this Romans 9 and some other places like a minefield for free will. Like, you, you, you can't go through this and hold on to free will unless you just absolutely ignore what the text is saying. I mean, literally, no one can. No one is able, uh, if you want to say it that way. Uh, no one is able to come. Like, that's how pervasive our depravity is. If God does not gift us the ability to come, we won't come. And as we're going to see, I think you just said this, those whom he gives the ability will come. Look back in John 6, um, look at verse 44. Mm-hmm. This is, he's saying the same thing. No one can come, is able to come to me, that's for salvation, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so notice the connection here. We don't come to Christ unless the Father draws us, and then here's the connection, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who's the him? The one whom the Father drew who came to Christ. Everyone that the Father draws will come, and everyone that comes will be raised up, resurrected to eternal life on the last day. 
Okay, that's why we're going to argue more later that this can't be some kind of general empowering. You now have, you know, some ability that you got to cooperate with. You may or may not come to Christ if the Father draws you. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if the Father draws you, you will come to Christ. And if you come to Christ, he's going to resurrect you to eternal life on the last day. It is an unbreakable connection. It's not just forcing logic on the text. It's just following the text, okay? Um, and so don't miss that. It is only when God gives the ability. And he actually goes on 45, 46, talking about, look, this, this is what the prophets predicted. So he's not just making this up on the spot. He's drawing from and bringing forth Old Testament teaching and applying it in light of the fact that he's the Messiah and he's now here. Well, let, let me just keep going with what Greg said. So let, let's just follow the flow of thought. Verse 44. So please look at your text there. John 6, 44. And let's, let's follow the next few verses in the flow of thought, because I, I totally agree with what Greg said. Verse 44 again, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now stop there. The number one response from the Arminian camp would say, yes, of course God has to draw you, but you can resist and you can ultimately deny God's drawing. You can ultimately say, God's drawing me. He's pulling me. He's wooing me, but I have the final say, and I can say no. I can, I can say no to the drawing. Now, I don't think that's what, I really sincerely don't think that's what this text is saying. First, for the reason Greg gave, because Jesus says right after that, and I will raise him up on the last day, implying those who are drawn are raised for saved. But let's keep going. Look at verse 45. I think, it's, I think it gets even more clear. Verse 45. So Jesus is going to back up what he just said with an Old Testament quote. It is, he quotes Isaiah 54. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. This takes a little thinking. Jesus is comparing the being Okay, this is a little complicated. Follow me here. Being drawn by God, he's going to back up with the Old Testament, okay? He picks Isaiah 54, and he picks this verse, for they will all be taught of God. Jesus sees the being taught of God as the same as being drawn by the Father. Okay, follow me here, okay? So he's backing up that God's going to draw, and then here he says it's, it's being taught. God's going to teach you, spiritually teach you to trust Christ. Now look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learn from the Father does what? Comes to me. Do you see it? Every single person God teaches comes to Christ. This is a 100% success rate. If God draws you, he's teaching you to trust Christ. And if he teaches you, everyone who is taught of God comes to me. Every single one. So again, you can't come to Christ unless God gives it to you. And if God gives it to you, you're going to come to Christ. It's a 100% success rate when God draws you to him savingly. And uh, if God does not draw you, it's a 100% I'm not going to trust him because I want my own devices. Thank you very much. So this is not one of those things where God draws 100 people and 40 people say yes and 60 people say no. No, everyone who is taught of God comes to me. I think that is a critically important point in this whole discussion. And why is it so important? Because then God gets the glory, right? And I think that that's pretty logical. If we had a big part of this or any part of it, then we would say, hey, look at me. But that's not the case. God's the one that did it. We looked in Ephesians 2 um, a couple of weeks ago. And when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and when you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. So that's everybody again in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Again, that's all of us, like the rest of mankind. And then two glorious words, I've heard Papa talk about them so many times, but God, God's the one that did it. What did he do? But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so the rest of that passage is great too. If you look at eight and nine, these are familiar, for by grace you have been saved. It's not by grace if, if we had something to do with it. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. So it's clear there again. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I think it's a great amount of humility has to flow out of this doctrine. If we really, the more we understand it, I think the more we'll grow in humility. We have to. Okay, to, to flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And some of these texts, of course, we'll come back to in future weeks. They're just too good to, to only go to once. But 1 Corinthians 1. And just look at a few verses here. Look with me at verse 22. You know what? I'm going to start verse 18 and we'll skip a few verses. For, for verse, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, do you see, if the cross is folly to me as an unbeliever, of course, I could choose it if I wanted it, but why would I want folly? Why would I want foolishness when I could have something else? So here, we don't perceive it as beautiful. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs. They want miracles. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But what makes the difference? But to those who are called, that is sovereignly summoned by God, for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling when God saves you. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despise in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? What's the purpose of election? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, etc. And it says, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So thoughts about how this creates humility, Greg? Well, we often hear, um, you know, people, I think we're gloriously inconsistent on this. Even before we <laughs> become convinced of this, like, we have instincts. I think every genuine born-again believer um, has an instinct to want to glorify God. For their and salvation. So, yes, for their salvation. Um, and so, like, in some instances you'll hear, you know, Arminian-ish people, you know, they'll, they'll give glory to God, but then they give glory to themselves. And they say, well, there's no way I'd give glory to myself. But what do you typically hear? You know, trusting in Jesus was the best decision I ever made. Trusting in Jesus was the best decision I ever made. You praising Jesus, but you're also praising yourself for what you did. Um, you know, I heard another, another one say at one point, you know, God did his part, now you got to do your part. So glory to God for what he did, but God can't do anything without me finishing the deal. The flesh uh, is a little help at all. A little, yeah, help. A little yes. help. And I mean, it should be clear that that is not the case, that we don't contribute, but we read a text like this, and when, think about when we get to heaven. Like, are we really going to be patting ourselves on the back for choosing Jesus. No. 
No, we're not. There's no way under the sun. If you think you are, again, you don't understand Scripture well, and I don't mean that to be argumentative. But what is, like you said, what does Paul say that no human being might boast in the presence of God? Read, look at verse 30. It's because of him or by his doing that you are in Christ. How do you get in Christ? By faith. Well, where does faith come from? Ultimately from God, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. From beginning to end, our boast is in Jesus. Our boast is in the sovereign drawing power of God. Uh, because we realize if he had not sovereignly superintended me coming to Christ, I would not have done so. I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have either. None of us would. I mean, and that, that's not overstating the case. It's just reflecting, I think, what Scripture clearly says. And again, you, you think about it. Look at verse 18 again. The difference that regeneration makes um, and why it, it, why it is what we're arguing for, what, what God's doing through it and all that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So if, if the cross is not beautiful, if it is not glorious, if it is not captivating, if Jesus dying on that cross as a substitute for sinners is not compelling to me or to you, then we're still dead in our sins. Like you said, you can have all the right information in your head, but what, what makes the difference? Otherwise, it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness, um, and we're going to boast in something that we did. But in the end, it goes, verse 31, we boast in the Lord for what he did. And there's no sharing of that. Jerry, I know we're coming toward the end here. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, so you, you, how old were you when you first were sort of introduced to this again? Were you in your 20s? Yeah, oh yeah, I was. Bible college. Page 24, I guess. Okay, so can you, can you just say a quick personal testimony of how the Lord used the, the kind of oh, yeah. slow acceptance, perhaps, of this, or kind of adjusting to this yeah. way of thinking. What effect did that have on you personally? Oh, man, being a believer was thrilling before that, but it just took, it, it just became so much more abundant, I think. And so, free, Greg used the word freeing. I think that and sharing the gospel became way more freeing. And then just the, the idea of God getting the glory instead of kind of a self-centeredness or a man-centered theology almost. Just a, a huge difference. And so I think if you look at the, the back of your page, I won't take very long because we don't have very long, but you're just more able to confess your sin, right? Because indwelling sin, we become more convinced of that. Mm. Uh, and so if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, forgive our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the second one. Um, our depravity, I think it helps us not to get fooled. Our depravity does what? Or our indwelling sin makes us not want to believe we have indwelling sin. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just our sinfulness that makes us think, no, I'm really all right. Look at those guys over there. They're the ones that have problems. Not so fast on that, right? How about realizing that our depravity makes me more desperate to take the log out of my own eye and better able to help others? We're not going to be so quick to always be pointing out everybody else's sin because we're more real, you know, reminded of our own sin. We become more convinced that I'm the problem, not the solution, right? I'm not the, the solution for anybody. We have to point them to, to Christ and certainly not for myself. Understand our depravity should change the way we pray because we should be far more confessing our sin, praying for our sin, 
When criticized or confronted with our sin, our response should never be defensive. Uh, You were quoting Spurgeon before. One of my favorite quotes was a lady in his church came up and said, Pastor Spurgeon, somebody's saying all kinds of false things about me. And he said, just be glad they're not saying the true stuff. And I thought, that's so true, right? So let's say somebody's got a pretty critical, and I'm not, it's maybe I'm, I don't know, 60% guilty of that. It's like, I'm 100% more guilty on 100 other things that they're not talking about. So let's not ever be defensive. And then finally, our circumstances are never our biggest problem. Your work, your wife or husband, your kids, whatever. And so I'm fooled into due to my own indwelling sin, to not thinking like this. And I have to go back to these verses. That's good. Well, we're about to wrap up again. Next week, uh, we will start on unconditional election. That is a big one. I mean, this, this one is too, but the next one, it's just so clear, I think, on which way we go on this is going to make a difference on how we uh, interpret all of these things. So unconditional election will be next, probably next two Sundays, and uh, we'll, we're looking forward to that. Um, Greg, can you close us? Yeah, let's pray. Father, God, it is humbling to consider just... Um, how sinful we are, Lord, and how that affects everything about us. God, we would not come to you if you did not first come and draw us. We would not trust in Jesus if you did not create saving faith in our hearts. God, we would not cling to him because he would not be precious and he would not be worthy. And God, we would not see a need of him if you did not open our eyes to our own wretched condition. Lord, if we take anything away from all that we've talked about these past two weeks, Lord, help us remember that in and of ourselves, there is nothing in us that can bring us to you. There is nothing in us that can help you out when it comes to our salvation. All our hope is outside of us. Lord, help us see that. Help us feel that. Lord, help us embody what is said in the Beatitudes. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness because we see there's none in us. Um, But that is the gift of the gospel. What we need, what you demand, is what you give in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the righteousness, the, the perfect life, Lord, that we know we can't offer because of our sin, that's what Jesus did. That's what he offered for us. And that's why we can say with joy and hope and expectation that We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are seen in your eyes just as righteous as Jesus through our faith in him. And God, what a sweet reality that is. And so, Lord, help us remember that we are wretched sinners, but that Christ is a great Savior for folks like us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.